the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, thank you kindly, and welcome to the March 23rd edition of Lifeline for this Thursday. Hope you're doing well, and great to have you on board with us for another edition of the program. Much to talk about on today's agenda, so without any further ado, we're going to get right down to cases, and let me uh, take the extreme joy and privilege of introducing our first guest tonight. He is a constitutional lawyer, former speechwriter for Republican presidential candidate Patrick Buchanan. He is also an educator and author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education. Always pleased to have join us on the program for his insights and musings, Mr. Joe Murray. Counselor, good afternoon. Welcome to you. Greg, thank you so much for having me back. Good to talk to you again. Wow. Today is going to be interesting because it, it centers around a topic that impacts each and every one of our lives each and every day, and that is this wonderful document that our founding fathers gave us that provides the very structure of not just life in America, but of course the functionality of our government, or on some days lack thereof, and that's called the United States Constitution. And, of course, the Constitution very much in the news of late in relationship to what's been going on between Florida, Georgia, New York, related to President Trump. Now, I want to be careful in sort of putting forward the um, the notion to listeners tonight. We're not going to engage in questions related to uh, who's right, who's wrong, what the evidence says. I think it's far premature to do any of that, and it just kind of fits in the category of speculation. And we can speculate all day long and not come up with any answers until the final decisions or all the information is made public. But what we can do is have a very spirited discussion related to the constitutionality of all of this. And and I guess, Joe, you know, to the degree which, uh, you know, we, we both understand that there are some issues and topics of which, quite frankly, the Constitution is just silent. And I suppose when it is silent, we then have to either look to guidance from Congress in terms of lawmaking, guidance from the Supreme Court in terms of addressing the constitutionality or lack thereof of Congress's lawmaking. And and in this case, and related to some of the challenges being faced by former President Trump, uh, as well, guidance from the Department of Justice. Let's first talk yeah. with, about some of the, the peripheral things going on. Uh, we had heard from Mr. Trump earlier in the week that he fully expected to be indicted on Tuesday. That did not happen. It may yet happen. We don't know. I, I guess the one first big question I had was, mm-hmm. why is this even a public matter? I mean, if the president chooses to make it public, okay, I, I get that. But the fact that these investigations are ongoing, I, I would think that it would be to the benefit of prosecutors and, quite frankly, to the, the protection of the constitutional rights of whoever might be on the investigative side, uh, that all of this would be better off it were done in a cover of secrecy. Why has this been so public? Well, uh, I think that I can have two words for it, and it's Donald Trump. Uh, and it's not just saying he's making it public. It's 
it just seems that ever since he raised his hand and took the oath of office back there in January of uh, 17, there has been a media fixation, whether it's right or wrong. And, you know, President Trump has used that media fixation to his benefit, and it's also been to his detriment. So I think anything dealing with Trump is going to have an air of, of media circusry, for lack of a better word, if that is even a word. And, and I think what we have to understand is that there is some precedent, and, and if you don't mind, Craig, I just want to clarify for your viewers, um, this is a state court action, so this is not a federal action. Uh, the DOJ did look at this and didn't see anything there. And I'm going to kind of speculate as to why that is the case. Um, there's two possible comparison points when it comes to this case, and that comes with both President Bill Clinton and former Democratic uh, candidate John Edwards. And I'm going to be honest, the Bill Clinton comparison is a weak one. Uh, back in the day, Bill Clinton paid $860,000 to Paula Jones, but I don't think that's an accurate comparison because it was in the middle of a, or it was to settle a lawsuit. So there's no air of secrecy in that. Uh, it was a settlement. Everybody knew about it, and it was done. But John Edwards is a little bit different. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take a few seconds and kind of explain to the folks what is actually happening and what the charge could very well be. Please. It is said that, you know, President Trump, uh, Trump uh, gave to his then-attorney, Michael Cohen, a $130,000 check to give to Stormy Daniels. This was going to be done basically to make Stormy Daniels go away. In business, this is commonly known as an NDA or a non-disclosure agreement. It has become commonplace in businesses. Uh, usually if listeners have hopefully never been fired, but sometimes if you are fired and you take a settlement, part of the agreement in that settlement is you don't talk bad about the business. Now, albeit this is not an employment relationship, but that's what it was. So. What happens is President Trump did not disclose this at the time that he was running for office. So what do we know? We know that the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, took a look at this transaction, and they said nothing criminal happened. They said that President Trump had no need to report this, and they concluded that the money that was sent through Mr. Cohen was not subject to campaign finance laws they clarify or classified this as a personal expenditure okay so let's fast or rewind to john edwards uh, back in 2008 i know we're going back a little bit john edwards was running for president and he received a lot of money in the form of gifts and he funneled a great deal of that money to his then girlfriend uh, and when president obama won that election he ordered his Department of Justice to bring charges against John Edwards, which they did, and they were litigated in court. And President uh, Obama's Department of Justice's main argument was basically this. Any, any type of payment that is made that could help a campaign is subject to campaign finance laws and disclosures. And that argument failed. And the reason it failed is because, let's flip it. So if I get campaign finance money and I buy a Ferrari because I want to look pretty sporty in my new advert, I could claim that buying that Ferrari was, was completely legal because it helped aid my campaign. So it could lead to using federal matching funds to get people Ferraris and Cadillacs. So we know under the guise of John Edwards, these arguments are not sticking. 
So that's where we are right now. Everybody pretty much is, is in agreement that the any indictment that comes down is going to be falsification of documents, meaning President Trump tried to hide the money and that he did not he did not report just to the proper authorities. Now, here's my question. Say, all all yeah, of this yeah. centers around his presidential campaign. So then I guess mm-hmm. my first question toward that end counselor is a question of jurisdiction. If this has gone before the Federal Election Committee, who is uniquely charged with the responsibility of oversight and upholding, I, I guess in harmony with the Justice Department, federal election law, then why is this of concern to any degree to New York City? That is a great question. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pounce on Bragg that much. He does have the authority. He's he's basically trying to get this under a fraudulent transfer, fraudulent uh, fraudulent documents, which New York does have such laws that Donald Trump, who was then a resident of New York, he was doing business in New York, could be held to. Now there's clear statute of limitations issues because the statute of limitation has run. Now the DA's office is trying to twist the law to make to make it basically say that the statute of limitations was paused. I don't think that's going to work. But let's assume the, the merit of your question. Why are you, as a DA in a city that it has crime that is spiking not since uh, to levels not seen since the 70s, why are you worrying about one guy that was sent $130,000 to a person who all the other officials said was okay? And I think that is the rub of it here because it smacks of a political uh, prosecution. Because you you have to go back to his even campaign. You know, D.A. Bragg, he ran on the premise that he was going to get Donald Trump. And this is why I think so many people, even like Mike Pence, and we know that Donald Trump and Mike Pence, they don't have the best relationship. Even his, his most of his primary opponents, they don't like how this looks and smells. Because, you know, I was told very early when I first started practicing law, and this was by my office manager, he told me, I can be right or I can be smart, but I can't be both sometimes. And this is a situation where I think the DA has the right to pursue these charges, but I don't think he is smart in doing so because it is not going to accomplish anything. And if we've seen recently, it is going to embolden the president. It's going to booster his poll numbers, and it might very well winnow out any of those potential no- uh, candidates that we're going to throw their hat in because it seems to me right now, Craig, that the Republican Party, minus maybe Ron DeSantis, is kind of coalescing around Trump right now. And it, it's a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, and I think any notion that you're you're running a campaign for whatever position it might be, in the case of, of a Bragg for uh, the position of DA, that you're running the campaign on a promise you're going to get somebody, uh, it yeah. certainly does at every level. Um, smack of partisan politics, and that that make that along with I think in my mind at least, and again I'm not a lawyer and I've never played one on TV either, but it it, it smacks of questions not only related to motivation, but also in terms of jurisdiction. Um, there's a lot more to unpack here. When we come back after the break, I want to move into some other arenas because in relationship, less so to this case, but to others, there has been assertions made by the president, um, former president, to things like executive privilege. And oddly enough, you know, there's there's a few privileges that are granted the president by the Constitution, uh, but far less 
And a lot of this seems to even turn on not so much about the letter of the law that we see laid down by Congress or by the Constitution itself, but laid down by the Department of Justice, which ironically is not a law-making body in and of itself. So how far can these assertions go? And where do we strike the balance between protecting the ability of the president to be president during his or her time in office and the ability to make sure that people are not also allowed to be above the law outside of that period of time. One question that comes to my mind is, all right, executive privilege, your communications are held quiet, can't be made public while you're president, makes perfect sense. What happens when you're no longer the executive? Does all of that necessarily disappear? Certainly back historically in the day in the 1970s, Richard Nixon argued that the executive privilege extended with him into his time as former president, but covered all of the actions while he was president. And there are issues related to not only protecting the president's ability to to govern, to do his job, uh, also to make sure that information of a, of a secretive nature that needs to be held secret for matters of national defense can continue to be held um, secretive. And yet at the same token, um, the power in the country doesn't flow from the top down. It flows from the bottom up. We the people, right? So at what point do we sort of create this dividing line between what protects the man or woman while they're in office and how much, if any, of that carries and follows them after leaving office. Interesting constitutional questions. We're going to unpack more as our conversation today with educator, former speechwriter for uh, former presidential candidate Patrick Buchanan, uh, constitutional lawyer and author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education, Mr. Joe Murray with us this afternoon. And time out back with more as Lifeline continues. Back to our conversation. Joe Murray is with us tonight. Joe is a constitutional lawyer, educator, former speechwriter, and author of the best-selling book, Take Back Education. We'll have to get Joe back on for that educational topic one of these days here soon. Today we're talking about Constitution, presidents, what they're allowed to do. I was kind of surprised, Joe, in, in preparing for our conversation today and just kind of perusing my little pocket U.S. Constitution here. In terms of of so-called um, privileges or, or presidential powers, uh, there's very little that is listed inside of the Constitution itself. And so at the end of the day, it seems like so many of these powers or privileges are either granted by Congress or allowed by the Supreme Court, if nobody challenges them, or in some cases uh, kind of kind of protected by the Department of Justice, uh, give, give us your sense. I, I saw, I think, the biggest privilege or right that the president has is to get a salary. <laughs> not, much, not much more beyond that. But, but the broader idea of why some of these protections are important, help us understand that. Well, it, here's the thing. When you are acting as the head of a state, you need to be able to do so with the belief that if you make a mistake or if something is uh, in that regard that you're protected. And any government employee has what's called qualified immunity. Uh, because imagine if uh, anyone could come up and sue you for anything, it would hinder your ability to make decisions uh, when you need to make them. And no smart person think, would ever run for office again. Exactly, yeah. I mean, and imagine what would happen to the courts. The courts would be so clogged that, you know, nothing could get done. 
I think the privilege that is probably the most influential to the pre- president is going to be executive privilege, and that is the ability of the president to basically come in and, in layman's terms and say, nope, can't see it, it's mine, right? You know, this is necessary for the protection of national security or, or really any reason that is reasonable. You know, you can't say you can't see this uh, because I don't want you to, ha, ha, ha. So you have to at least articulate a reason. And I think this is a very misunderstood privilege. And I'm going to do my best because it's very complicated, but I'm going to do my best to try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Uh, You referenced it right before the break, uh, Nixon versus GSA. That is kind of the big case on executive privilege. And it was when President Nixon, who was no longer in office, he was out of office, uh, he was being challenged, and he was exerting executive privilege. And the question arose that if you are a former president, does that privilege travel with you? Sort of like the Secret Service protection. Right. And the court, it did and it did not really answer that question. Uh, because I think what we're seeing now, the, one of the other legal issues President Trump is having is with the requests he's received about some of the confidential documents that he was in possession of. Uh, president Trump, or some of the, any of the documents really, in when these documents have been subpoenaed, President Trump had claimed they were subject to executive privilege, and therefore he did not have to hand them over to government authorities. So let's pause right there. We have a former president who is basically saying no to any type of investigative body. You can't see these. These are protected by my, my right to executive privilege. As of right now, where the law, law stands, he can do that. But here's, the, here's kind of the rub. This is where it gets murky. When you have a sitting president who comes in and says, yeah, no, they're not subject to executive privilege, who wins? And I think the law is, is very murky on this, but if we follow other precedents, it would seem that the president that is sitting in the Oval Office at this point would win. And I need to stress, this was not the issue that was that was put forth to the court in the Nixon case, which is why I think many people today, even those in Congress, even those that are actually fighting the Trump case right now, they seem to be arguing that Trump still has a leg to stand on in this case, but I don't think he does. And this is why it doesn't make sense, uh, Craig. You have a sitting president. That's the person who is running the country. That is the person who is the actual agent of the government. And while a former president his executive privilege has to be given some credence, some respect. I think when the actual president steps in and says, no, you can't do that, then that is going to supersede that act of executive privilege by President Trump. And much uh, of this extends, you know, in many forms and fashion in terms of sort of the, the, the umbrella of protection that it affords. For example, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe, yeah. a member of the United States Congress while actively a member of Congress, can get up in the House and can make comments from the floor as a seated, sworn member of Congress, and they have immunity from defamation, for example. However, that that immunity does not follow them once they leave office because they are no longer a member of Congress, and therefore that protective immunity, that protective umbrella, disappears. So is part of the argument here that executive privilege is a real thing, but it only applies to the executive, and you're only an executive while you're in office? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, It is still 
somewhat murky whether or not a and I would say basically a former president can still exert uh, exercise that privilege so long as the sitting president does not override it. Okay, if that makes sense. So if if the thing had been that President Trump exerted executive privilege, and let's say there was a Republican that was sitting there, and that Republican president did not override it, then yes, I think legally President Trump would have a leg to stand on saying that executive privilege is still there, because the only person that can either wait, or excuse me, the only person that can waive it is a sitting president. And in this case, President Biden waived it. And President Trump can't override that waiver because he's no longer in office. Now, let me really complicate things, and I, and I know yeah. my, my engineer's eyes are going to cross. I think you're not going to ask that question right now, are you? Yeah, I am, so bear with me. Uh, All right, I'm sitting down. Part of the executive privilege, of course, is, is sort of secrecy powers, uh, really? that that privilege can cover documents that are created during the time of the presidency. And I would wonder, though, uh, let's assume for a moment that there are degrees of executive privilege that does follow the former executive into private life, as as seems to be to a certain degree suggested in in the Nixon case. Does that only cover matters of, of their actions related to discharging their duties as a government official? Does it also cover private actions. And here's the reason why I pose that question. Uh, During the course of his tenure as president, there are documents that get created as a part of the president discharging his duties that might be negotiations with other countries, whatever it is, that it is a matter of national interest that that information, the details contained in those documents, be held and maintained private. Shouldn't be available to the public. Certainly don't want to get into the hands of a foreign enemy. But does that necessarily extend to private matters? So, for example, if the president had access to certain documents that were classified as top secret, while president, part of discharging his duties, makes perfect sense. If you decide to take those documents as a keepsake, because look at the neat thing that I negotiated here, whatever it might be, you decide to keep it as as a keepsake going into your private life that has no bearing whatsoever on your private life, does that suddenly then expose you that those so-called secrecy powers fall apart because the action that you're taking really has more to do with your action as a private citizen to be than the president of the United States? Yeah, that is a, a loaded question. I know. There's so many rabbit holes we can go down. Um, there's a couple ways to go this. Let's go through a few scenarios. One is the accidental removal. That is what some have claimed happened with Biden in the boxes by the Corvette. And by the um, way, let's, let's set the record straight. Yeah. There yeah. is evidence to suggest that in recent decades, yeah. every single president has left that office with a whoops, how did that get in there? Now, whether it was by yeah. accident, whether it was intentionally, who knows? But yeah. there's not a single president that hasn't walked away with you know their hands on on some documents the the question is whether or not it was done intentionally so and i think broader to the point of the, the current debate surrounding president trump and that is the notion that well once the request to return documents that belong to the federal government was made and the assertion is everything has been returned that then discover no 
a lot has not been returned, and there was an awareness that they had not been returned. That, that's, I think, where this, this sort of seems to be pivoting. Am I wrong? And, and that's where it is, because you have the, the presidential rack, and when, when the archivist is asking for these documents, you, and even if you dispute it, there should be a, a situation where you kind of put these, I guess for layman's terms, to put it in kind of like an escrow account where they're held until it's determined who has the rightful ownership to these documents. And, and that's where it's hard to, because if the president has a good faith or the former president has a good faith belief that he's entitled to these documents, then he can make those charges. And that's what's kind of different here is that the records that they're going after with President Trump, you know, he is, they're fighting over the records that are there, and, and they're fighting over what he has to to, to provide under the Presidential Records Act, where some of the instances that we've talked about, these are records that have gone out, nobody knew they were gone, and then all of a sudden they're found, say, in the garage next to a nice, beautiful Corvette, by the way. And, and so there's a lot going on here, because a president is going to want to try to keep, or a former president is going to want to try to keep as much as he can, and of course the archivist is going to want as much as it can get, so, yes, these, these battles are not too uncommon, and I think why it's rubbing so many the wrong way, and, and, I, and I'm not doing this to go into politics, but look at the emails from Hillary Clinton. The FBI probably was never even considered, or the FBI ne- never even considered a raid on their residence, and I think what many people are asking, is President Trump being treated differently because he's President Trump? And that circles back to the question that you asked me uh, before in the first segment, which is, why is this DA going after President Trump? It seems like such a far-fetched case. Is it a possible case? Yes, but it's far-fetched. And I think that is what is really now starting to, to interfere with the legal process. I think this whole political suspicion is now overshadowing the actual legal process. Well, and in my, and in my mind, as I said earlier, it also yeah. raises question of jurisdiction. I mean, do, does the National exactly. Archive have a right to assert that documents re- be returned that were related to a presidency? Yeah. Absolutely it does. Those Absolutely. documents are the property of the United States government, and we have Richard Nixon to thank for the Presidential Records Act for all of that. So that, yeah. that exactly. I find less problematic, le- less politically charged. Now, you know, oh, the issue of the raid, yeah, right. that, that may be complicated. Complicates things a little bit here. Talking about yeah, yeah, Mm. Yeah. and that's where I think the issue is, and I, and and I think that is the problem. And and you know, Craig, you and I have been at this for a long time, and I think the issue that we're having right now is we don't have a media that is objective. We don't have a media that is reporting uh, what the actual facts are. Because I have watched MSNBC, I have watched CNN, I have watched Fox, and really, when I'm hearing about, let's say, the DA thing up in New York. I never really hear them talk about what the alleged crime could be. It is Trump gave hush money, and they they leave it at that. Very few are talking about the Edwards comparison or the Clinton comparison. And and I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing a society that gets their headlines from, from social media feeds. So we're making these conclusions with not even 10 or 25% of the, the facts. And, and like I said, Everybody has the right to come to their conclusion, and I know whether he's indicted or not, and if he is, the the jury will be able to come to that. But the thing that scares me about all of this is that nobody is really digging in and asking, what is the crime? Was it legal? Should the FBI have raided? Could they have done it different ways? 
And, and that is what's disturbing me the most, is that we're not having a debate because we don't know the facts or we haven't cared to research the facts. Well, that kind of and goes I, to my opening comment earlier, and that is concerns that a lot of this that, quite frankly, should have been all secretive until all the facts had yep. come forward uh, have not been so. And as a result, everybody is speculating. And, you know, the other irony is that, you know, f- for those that may have a political axe to grind here, it seems to me that it not only weakens their case, but also puts their case at extreme risk just because of the very public nature of all of this. Somebody is out there making all this hay before the press and, and clearly and, has an agenda in doing so. Precedent. Yeah. I mean, we're in a we're in dangerous precedent world right now, and I think we're seeing that right now because now the House GOP is calling Bragg before the for, for before the House, and now it's going to be what we're doing now, what we're setting up now, because, you know, everybody says January 6th, everybody says this. I think this is a greater threat to our democracy right now, because what we have now done is we have weaponized institutions that are supposed to be objective, that are supposed to protect. And what do you do you not think that if President Trump gets reelected or if potentially Ron DeSantis gets it, do you not think they're going to now open up all these investigations on Joe Biden? Well, and, you know what? Ironically, Joe, yeah. that's always the risk, isn't it? That when you start yep. to pay politics at this level, um, you know, it, it, it becomes a tit for tat. And, you know, yeah. the, the regulations that you impose and the way in which you carry out those regulations, you know, while one party is in charge, guess what? In four years, the tables could flip and then they're going to come back and do it against you. And, and suddenly, yeah, you've used the word weaponize. Weaponize is a good definition for all of this. And sadly, as much as people think, oh, look what Congress is doing, look what the president's getting away with, wait a minute. Look at the potential damage that all of this may have toward the stability of our democracy and the aid and comfort that it gives our enemies from the outside looking in, thinking, these guys can't hold their act together. Now would be a glorious time to decide to drop a bomb or to invade or whatever it might be. And, you know, if if you think I'm kidding, just look at a couple of lessons in history and you'll realize just how dangerous all of this may be. Joe, we need to take a time out. When we come back, the other compelling thing, and I realize yeah, I, I'm asking these 10-part questions, <laughs> and we need eight hours to do this, and we're trying to get it done in 45 minutes. But I'm, I'm curious to have you help us understand issues related to, for example, can, can you hold a seated president accountable for his or her actions. And we're hearing a lot of, well, the Department of Justice rules say that you cannot indict a seated president. Those are just rules made up by the Department of Justice. It's not a law-making body to begin with. It seems to be more procedural. So then if that be the case, can they decide to change the rules at whim? Can it change from administration to administration? Depends on who the AG is. Sets the tone for what rules are going to be instituted or implemented. And, uh, wow, all of a sudden we're once again into... Whoever's in charge makes the rules, right? You own the sandbox. You get to decide uh, who gets to play in the sandbox. Pretty scary in terms of the potential threat to democracy, all of this. A timeout back with more of our conversation. Don't you go away. Craig Roberts, Lifeline with Joe Murray. All right, Joe, they're getting the shepherd's crook ready to, to kick me uh, kick me out of here. <laughs> but I, I wanted to uh, to come back to this notion of um, 
many questions that have been brought forward in terms of, well, exactly to what degree can the Justice Department go after a seated president or a former president? And the one thing that I keep hearing is, well, the Department of Justice rules do not allow a seated president, for example, to be indicted. Now, I've got to believe there have to be some limits. I mean, for example, if the only means of dealing with a president who has broken the law is to, let's say, uh, impeach and remove, what would happen if the President of the United States ordered that every member of the House of Representatives be arrested? They're all arrested. Now they can't meet in order to impeach. And so there's no means, at least constitutionally in my mind, to hold the president accountable. So if, if the Department of Justice has rules about all of this, can't those rules be changed at anyone's whim? Well, they're rules. They're not laws. And the the fact of the matter is is that this has really never been litigated. So we do not have a definitive answer. All we have are basically government uh, employees who are reading the Constitution. And when I say rules, they're pretty much giving suggestions, okay? So what the memo written by the Department of Justice basically puts forth the argument of why a sitting president should not be subject to an indictment while he is there. The fear is is that, you know, you could have someone like Bragg out in Manhattan who has a political axe to grind and who would just go out and indict the president. But I think it's unclear as to whether a president can or cannot be indicted because the, the main argument that people go to when they look at the Constitution, it's in Article 3, and what it says, but the party convicted, that means the president who has been convicted of it, you know, he's been impeached and then convicted at a Senate trial, shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, punishment. Now, so what the argument has been is that the president can only be indicted after the Senate or the House is impeached and the Senate has convicted. And they point to Article 3 as, as a justification of that argument. Why I think that's wrong, again, if we listen to the language, the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment. I read that as basically telling other courts is that double jeopardy does not attach. Just because a president was convicted by the Senate doesn't mean another court could find him guilty of a criminal act. It does not hold that he can't be indicted while a sitting president. And I think the analogy would be, and I know Trump did this tongue-in-cheek, but during the 2016 campaign, he often joked that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for him. Uh, and, and the idea is if that if that happened while he was sitting in office or if Joe Biden did that while he was sitting in office, the idea that we would have to wait for the, uh, the House to impeach and the Senate to convict, I don't think most people would tolerate that. But like mo- most lawyers always do, Craig, all I can tell you is we don't know. All right. So, uh, so that that does go to yeah. the heart, though, of the question or the, the scenario that I pose. The president announced, yeah. you know, that we're having every member of Congress arrested, which on certain days yeah. I, I would be all for, by the way. <laughs> but that's for a different uh, yeah. show. Uh, but yeah. it, it, were that to take place and say, well, now that body can't 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 discharge its duties because you got them all in jail. They can't get a quorum together all in the same room. And therefore, the president could move forward and do pretty much whatever he wanted with impunity because the the threat over his head of impeachment and uh, and and conviction by the Senate would be would be eviscerated. So, you know, it seems to me as if whatever comes down, be it the decisions made, whatever the indictment may or may not be, 
in New York City or in Georgia, Florida, wherever it might be. I kind of get the impression from what you're saying, to kind of put a big ribbon around all of this, uh, Counselor, is that there are going to be aspects of this from a constitutional standpoint that will undoubtedly be argued and litigated for years to come. Am I right? No, you're right. And and the thing that is scary right now, Craig, is we have sat and talked about this uh, tonight. And as uh, we, we've dealt with this since Saturday, let's see what's happened in the world. Amazingly, Saudi Arabia and Iran, two mortal enemies, and this is going back centuries over the uh, Shia and Sunni split, they have reached a peace agreement. And who brokered that peace agreement? It was not the United States uh, Department of State. It was China. China. In the same week, President Xi and Vladimir Putin have met, and they have now offered that that Russia is going to be giving China a lot of its natural gas, and they have an agreement. So in this week, while we're talking about whether there's an indictment or not an indictment, China has solidified its place as challenging what we thought would be another American century, but is looking to be a Chinese century. And I think that is what's scary right yeah. now. And, and that, that really, that really, you know what, that might be a good topic for next week, because that certainly yeah. gets to the heart of not only questions related to the, the influence um, of the West on the rest of the world, the stability of, of democracy, because ironically, the four countries that you just mentioned, Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, Russia, none of them are democracies, some of the farthest thing from democracies, and the others are only just, you know, slap a coat of paint on it, pseudo-type democracies. And what does all this mean for the not just the future of our own nation, but the future of the world? You know, we, we've often heard the talk about, you know, America being the arsenal of democracy, and we have fought wars protecting democracy both here at home and abroad. And maybe all of this is sadly slipping through our fingers. And, you know, it's the old we've been busy fiddling while Rome burns scenario. Pretty frightening. Joe Murray, we sure appreciate the insights as always. Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer. Check out his book, Take Back Education. You can find it online through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. Coming up next around the corner of the Church of the Week, Pastor Joel Jones joins us as this edition of Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.